everybody. I want to welcome you to the second episode of the Chris P. Cast, which is the, still the working title until someone tells me to stop calling it that, which I'm sure is going to happen because that's probably a thing that exists already. Uh, real quick before we start, thanks to everybody who listened. Um, over 200 hits on the website last week after I posted the first episode, so that was very exciting. Um, so keep listening, and hopefully I submitted this to iTunes, so hopefully it'll be on iTunes soon. I will let you guys know if that happens. Um, but anyway, there's another person in the room who hasn't spoken yet, which is awkward, even though it's only been like 20 seconds. Um, so this episode is going to be with my friend Jeremy. Say hi, Jeremy, to everybody. Hi, Jeremy, to everybody. Very funny. Mm-hmm. You're a funny guy. Um, Jeremy, tell us uh, about yourself, what you do. Um, yeah, what you do, where you're from, maybe. I think that would be good. Uh, I'm from Iowa. I've moved around a lot kind of growing up, but I consider myself a Des Moinesian now. Um, and I guess, and I've, I've been trying to find a better way to articulate this, but I guess I'm a pastor, for lack of a better term, uh, starting a new church in the West Des Moines area. So. And how long have the church has been going for? Uh, about two years. We're having our two-year birthday come up. I started a little bit before that, but uh, we haven't been gathering publicly uh, except for the last two years. Okay, great. Um, I don't remember... Jeremy and I have known each other for, it seems like, forever. I don't remember how we met, even. I'm pretty sure you were sitting in the chapel lounge, and I walked by uh, as I started working there. Um, and you were just sitting back there, and I was meeting everybody, and you're like, oh, and this is Petrick. He doesn't go to school anymore. But, uh, <laughs> That's he weird that I was hadn't, there. Hadn't moved on yet. That I was there. Yeah, I still have it in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Jeremy and I both went to Simpson, though we weren't there at the same time, um, which for those of you who don't know where that is, it's just our tiny liberal arts college in Iowa. Um, the Harvard of the Midwest. The Harvard of the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Or at least of the Des Moines area. At least of Warren County. Or at le- <laughs> That's what I was going to say, too. I was going to say of Indianola, so you gave it more credit than I did. Um, okay, so, Jeremy, who do you believe you are? I was... Actually thinking about this very question, because I knew you were going to ask me about it, and I knew it was going to cause me some great anxiety, because of course there's like 800 different ways that you could answer that question, right? right? Uh, That's why I ask it. (laughs) I know, which is kind of a pain in the ass, but... So I was thinking about this, because I studied uh, philosophy at Simpson, Mm -hmm. speaking of Simpson, and of course the philosophical approach to that question is... uh, what are you, right? Like, right. like all these questions are, are connected. And so below the, who do you believe you are is, you know, sort of like, what are you? And we were sort of taught to think of, of that question in terms of essence and essences, right? Like there's a certain thing that makes you, you, and, and then they have these secondary or accidental properties that are associated with that. And so the example that was used in this was cats. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is not a reference to the Hunger Games, but there's there's a certain catness quality, right, about the cat. Catness, that boo, you, that joke. Yes. <laughs> uh, there's going to be a lot of those, unfortunately. Uh, good. <laughs> I also, yeah, make. There's something about being a dad that gives you a terrible, terrible sense of humor. You think that just? Cl- I think that just clicks on when you. Does it just happen all of a sudden? All those jokes you thought were terrible. It happens pretty quickly, and I realize the reason why this happens is, is suddenly you can't tell all, like, the dirty <laughs> jokes, and you yeah. can't tell jokes yep. that have, like, swear words in them, and no, so you just have to, uh, you have to compromise for the next best thing. But, uh, so there's this, this idea that you have a cat, 
and there is a certain fundamental essential quality about the cat that you can't strip away. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's not just its appearance, because uh, obviously uh, there are some hairless versions of cats, for example, and so it, it's not its hair, it's not its ears. You can you can imagine a cat without legs. Um, so what is that? What is that fundamental essential thing that makes a cat a cat? And of course, the parallel for humans is, um, depending on on which thinker you want to reference, uh, I think it was Aristotle who said humans are essentially rational animals. And so you have that quality of of human reason. Um, And I was kind of thinking uh, about that and thinking that there are certainly lots of people who don't appear to be uh, all too, all too rational. (laughs) Um, But as I was thinking that and thinking of other ways to to answer it, I I kind of concluded, so this is the shortcut answer (laughs) that uh, the guy you had on last, last Mm -hmm. time, uh, what was his name? Anthony, Anthony, uh, probably had what what's maybe the best way to respond to that question, which is talking about relationships, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think there are tons of really bullshit ways that you can answer the question, which sure. are like, oh, well, I do this for a job, and uh, I do this for fun, um, which I hope that's not who we believe we are. I hope, I hope it's not just how we spend our time that, that we identify who we are and, and what we're about. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the relationships are, are part of it too, but, uh, sort of getting back to the question about being like, what are you? Um, I'm also reading this book, which I don't have sitting right next to me now, but it's just talking about how, how life came into being. Mm -hmm. So the fact that you have humans or that you, the fact that you have life at all, or the fact that you have, um, matter at all is sort of this really... I think amazing and weird thing. Sure. Because, you know, scientists generally agree that it seems like there was a period way, 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 way back in history, prehistory, that there was nothing. Right. And then now there's, now there's a something. And, uh, this particular author that I'm reading right now that I can't even pronounce his name, uh, has come that, uh, brought to the attention sort of the interrelatedness of, of all things. Um, and so the fact that we have particles that came together to form atoms and these atoms came together to form molecules and then these molecules eventually, uh, somehow resulted in life and then increasingly more complex, uh, forms of life. And and then to think that I'm somehow a part of that Mm -hmm. and, and you're somehow a part of that process, I think is really sort of amazing. And we take a lot of that stuff for granted and we think, um, when we respond of, you know, who we are and who we understand ourselves to be, we think just in terms of like the last five minutes. Yeah. Uh, but really the much larger story is that the whole universe has sort of conspired for you to be here. Mm-hmm. And conspired is a good word. I like that. Yeah. Do you think, I think there's two ways cause I think there's two ways to come at that too, which is mm-hmm. that you can get sort of lost in the bigness of things, yeah. which, which the end of that thought I think is insignificance. Like if you just start thinking about how big the universe is mm-hmm. and all the stuff that's happened to put us here together um, there, it's easy to go like, well, how can I affect any change on something so big? You know, like, like what, like throwing a rock into a, the ocean, you know, um, that's not a saying, maybe it is. <laughs> or the other way to look at that is, is the specificity with which, um, the specificity of how you came to be the things you've experienced and thinking that all those things happened for a reason I think we both prefer the latter. <laughs> uh, 
because the former is kind of a bummer. But um, so I want to ask you about something you said before, which is uh, we were talking about the last episode, which I like that there's already references to previous episodes and there's only one episode, um, <laughs> which was about defining yourself by relationships. Do you think it's possible for people? Can we can we have any understanding of ourselves separate from other people that isn't understood in context with other people? Do you think? Probably for those people who don't have like parents, for example. Okay. <laughs> uh, no, I, I don't think we can. And, and that was sort of the, the larger idea that I was trying to um, make, a, make a connection with is that, of course, none of, nothing happens outside a relationship. Mm. And that uh, this scientist that, that I was reading was saying that we have the particles on the molecular level uh, mm. or the element, uh, elemental level. We have those because of the stars. And a lot of those were heated in a way. Uh, so that I don't, this is where I'm going to sound like an idiot because I don't know exactly how this, how this happens. That's okay. But, uh, I don't think we have any nuclear physicists that listen to the podcast yet. <laughs> you never know. You'd be surprised. I'm maybe, <laughs> but it, it, it's heated to, to the point where it, it changes, uh, how many electrons and how many, how many protons right. it, mm-hmm. it has in it. And that's how we have some of the stuff, uh, that we have that makes us, us. And so of course you need stars and now we're, we're finding out exactly how big, the universe and all the galaxies are now and and to think that maybe all that stuff had to happen for us to be here and to have sure. what it seemed like sometimes our, our own tiny little insignificant lives mm. um, but then you start talking about the relationships and then they're sort of endless which is the anxiety producing part of the conversation yeah me. yeah sure then the question becomes which relationships do you talk about mm-hmm. um, and I think for most people their default setting is to bring up the relationships where they feel most validated or they feel most, mm-hmm. most essential yeah. that, uh, here are the, the places where you'd take me out of the equation and I wouldn't be replaceable. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, um, and I think the three qualities that he had mentioned were that he was a Catholic, he was a husband and he was a, uh, he was a father. That's correct. Yeah. And at least in the latter two of those, uh, scenarios, you couldn't replace him with somebody else and have that still work or go on in the same way. I mean, hypothetically, uh, I won't talk about your friend now because this is that would be maybe a little bit morbid. But right, right. You, you have somebody uh, in a family, uh, a father figure, so, uh, so to speak, and then he dies, mm-hmm. and then hypothetically, uh, the wife could remarry somebody who could serve as sort of an, mm-hmm. an, an adoptive. But father, the qualitative rates change, though. That relationship yes. changes then. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. And uh, for me, I'm, I'm tempted to like. Look at let's make that list longer, and yeah. so you could look at uh, friends or particular. Uh, I would like to think that this church that we're doing is a non-repeatable event. Mm-hmm. That the particular arrangement and personality of, of people that are part of that and doing their thing and interacting with the larger community in the way that they are mm-hmm. is an unrepeatable and irreplaceable thing as well. Which I think is probably true of everybody in all their jobs. We usually think of uh, most people in their line of employment that. Oh, well, I'm just here to do this task, and anybody can also do this task. But, uh, and I think I've shared this with you, I read a, a while ago, that uh, when it comes to hiring people at a job, 90% of it comes down to your resume and your prior experiences. So basically the training that you have to fulfill tax, tax yeah. acts. Yeah. But 75% of the people are fired because of uh, a poor dynamic in relationships in the yeah. workspace. Yeah, yeah. Um, which makes perfect sense. And that's, that's sort of the X factor that maybe matters the most of how is, how is this person and their personality and the u- unique traits that they bring 
mm-hmm. to the to the social landscape of the place going to change or impact sure uh, how how the whole corporate entity lives and plays out. Well, it's something that it's somebody in medicine that we've sort of run. There's a paradigm shift sort of happening with the way that we train people in healthcare now, which is that instead of emphasizing so much like school, there's still a lot of school, but instead of emphasizing so much like school, I think we realized that if you put somebody in a room for eight years and make them like hole up in the library and make them study constantly and they don't go do anything or, you know, they don't go out. And I, I know plenty of doctors who, you know, obviously parted their way through medical school, so it must work. But, um, I had one doctor tell me once that, uh, that uh, Wikipedia got him through medical school. And he, was, he said it not jokingly either. So, um, and some of you know who he is. I don't know if he listens to this, but I hope he does. And I hope that he heard me say that. Um, but that those people tend to make socially awkward doctors. Yeah. And so they can be very smart. But, you know, when it comes down to it, if they lack an ability to sort of communicate with patients and be social and have a relationship with them, they're less effective as healthcare providers. I think most people would probably have I don't know this. I don't have like a, like a source to back this up, but I think most people would rather have, you know, somebody that they feel is personable, um, that they felt really heard vice somebody who could just recite a lot of facts. Um, you can reference Malcolm Gladwell cause he wrote on that very topic too. Actually, it was more specifically in reference to lawsuits mm. related to doctors. And he said that, uh, after compiling all the data, uh, the, the primary factor that he identified as being the difference between having a lawsuit or not having a lawsuit was not the practice of the doctor. It wasn't um, whether or not the person was evil or whatever, but it all came down to how long the doctor took with the patients. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the doctors who spent two minutes longer were 75% less likely to be sued because it's 75% something like two that. Minutes, yeah. Don't quote me on yeah. that, but I think it, it's somewhere. It's in that, it's in that ballpark yeah. though. Yeah. Uh, because people don't want to sue somebody who's, who's trying to care about them. Yeah. And if somebody spends, you know, 30 seconds versus five minutes, uh, the doctor who takes five minutes just to ask how you're doing and maybe check in with your, your kids or your stress levels or whatever. Mm. Um, even, even if they do a bad job with, with their practice or their diagnosis or whatever, um, the person's going to like, going to say, Hey, this was a human being who's trying to treat me as a human being and show concern. So you think it's as simple as the, the doctors they liked, is it, or is that too reductive, do you think? Um, this wasn't my research. I mean, I think that's probably a part of it. Yeah. Uh, I, but I think for them it was, because I think you can like somebody, or you can dislike somebody who's still it trying to respect care. the fact that they're, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at least according to Malcolm Gladwell, that's... There was that study, and it sort of famously gets quoted all over the place. I think it was an episode of Scrubs too, honestly. Like, that's how in the zeitgeist it was for a while, but like that on average doctors only let patients talk for like 16 or 20 seconds before they interrupt them for the first time. Yeah. And you know, as somebody that did something close to that or something that approximates that, or I do it still, you do kind of fight that urge to just jump in. Cause I think I already know what's wrong with right. you and I don't want to hear the rest of it. Um, you have to fight that urge quite a bit cause you never know what the next thing they're going to say is, but I can also see how, what that communicates about, uh, or what that, you know, being a patient, how you would uh, prefer the guy who sits and lets you talk. Because then at least you'll feel heard, even if you weren't. Um, yeah, and don't you think that that sort of goes back to your initial question, not necessarily just about yourself, but about other people as well, is that who do you believe these other people are? Mm-hmm. Are they just a problem for you to check off on your job? Or 
do you have some other sort of more basically human or humane responsibility toward them in the yeah. midst of that too? Yeah. Because I think, uh, and if anybody's had any experiences with like anybody in the customer service industry, like recently, you'll find that, uh, and, and you can imagine that it's being in that position where you're taking people's complaints uh, is maybe not the most encouraging when it comes to the nature of humanity mm-hmm. uh, as you're dealing with people. But uh, I remember a year ago as we moved into our new house trying to get our internet hooked up and just dealing with like four or five different customer service yep. representatives. And I just wanted to ask you know a question. If there was some way that I could be con- connected with the people who actually did the internet hookup. Right. They were telling me... It, and I work from my house, so the internet's kind of important. They were telling me that I couldn't have the internet for like a month. And I was like, is there a tech that I could talk to that they could just squeeze, squeeze us in? Us in. It's, it's basically, you know, just flipping a switch. Right. right? Um, but I had like two people hung, hung two people hung up on me. And uh, one of the person was just like, oh, it's it's not my problem. Oh, they actually hung up on you. Yes. Well, they, they were transferring me, but uh, that <laughs> transfer sort of went nowhere. He so. put that in quotes since yes. you can't hear yeah. us, but, or can't hear us. You can hear us. You can't see Kisses, us. Yeah. Um, so what relationships would you say define you then? Um, how quickly do we want to get theological on this? I don't care. <laughs> Cause I think, I don't think we need to spend too much time talking about the obvious ones, right? Like I'm a father, I'm a husband, mm-hmm. uh, I'm a, a, a child and a brother and friend and all that stuff. Um, so one of the things that I, I think is exciting about getting a chance to talk about this with you specifically yeah. is to think about how we relate in, in more fundamental ways with the rest of, of everything else. Sure. I mean, I think uh, one of the things that's really fascinating about keeping an eye on culture at mm-hmm. all is that there are sort of these movements that we all participate in and those, uh, those movements or those uh, sort of that cultural atmosphere is inherited by the next generation yep. and influences them sometimes in a reactionary way and sometimes in, uh, hey, that was really cool what, what the people before us did and so let's keep, let's keep that going. And... Um, that I think is probably one of the reasons we don't talk about it is not because we're not aware of it, but because we don't know how to talk about it Yeah. because it's not very easily quantifiable. Like, uh, I, I think one of the first conversations you and I had was about the emerging church movement. Mm-hmm. And one of the fascinating things about the emerging church movement, which, uh, for those of you who don't know what that is, it's basically just, uh, a series of spontaneous events, uh, across the world where, people started looking at church differently. And that's really mm-hmm. all you need to know uh, at this point. But the, Which is something that, by the way, happens all the time. Yeah. It, it, the, the Christianity sort of has a history, or it should. Well, mm-hmm. it has a history. Yeah. It, it should have an attitude of reformation all the time. Yeah. And constantly being looking at improving. But um, yeah, yeah. So anyway, go on. So. And what's interesting about that is just that uh, here were uh, people, thinkers, speakers, who were coming up with these ideas and these perspectives um, and there were really, really strong parallels between perspectives, between uh, people and personalities and communities, but they didn't have any connection mm-hmm. with one another. So they were, they were essentially saying almost the same thing uh, in different parts of the world. And this happened in a number of different, different cases. And that phenomenon alone, I think, is really surprising. And uh, there are a couple of different, different ways to look at it. One of them is that everybody was just feeling the same thing because the the cultural atmosphere was so uh, pungent with some particular aroma, so to speak, mm-hmm. that everybody's like, oh, that obviously smells terrible. Let's do something about that. Um, that's one way of looking at it. Or if you want to take a more 
um, theological, inspirational approach. Uh, here were people around the world and in different communities, different parts of the country, who were picking up on this sort of new, uh, innovative uh, idea or approach or perspective. Um, and it was almost, uh, I use the words slightly sarcastically, it was almost like magic, right? Right. Like, yeah. There's this, this magical phenomenon that's, that's happening around the world. And for me, whether, regardless of how you really think that works, I think the irrefutable result of it is that we all participate in this, right? Mm. We're all participating somehow in the larger culture and we all have some influence. Um, and I'll use an example between us, right? Sure. Like uh, a, a couple weeks ago, I just made a book recommendation to you and that for you uh, was enough to, to spark like some whole other thing Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. for you going on. And I'm, I had no anticipation that something like that would happen. Yeah. But uh and I think all of us, if we look back and, and identify points in our story where we had these defining moments, a lot of the times people were just, the people around us were just doing what they ordinarily do. But for us, we caught something. Uh, yeah. we, we, we saw something in a new way and it changed us. And you never know what that's going to be. Yeah. Certainly not. Yeah. I think that, you know, this talks about, and um, if you're listening and want to know uh, sort of the things that, the kinds of people you would read to kind of get an idea of what we're talking about. Um, one of them is most certainly Rob Bell, who uh, Jeremy and I are both pretty big fans of, mm-hmm. who also has a podcast. Um, and if for some reason he ever listens to this, if you want to come on the show, Rob. <laughs> I said no famous people, but I would do it. I would make an exception for Rob. Uh, or Richard Rohr, who is the other guy that's now been mentioned in both episodes, which I'm totally fine with because... but. Um, I think that, so Rob Bell talks about, and you and I have mentioned this before, and it's really become something that I, I hear it in what you're saying, which is that sort of tuning into the, what does he say, the humming, mm-hmm. um, which is actually Jane, something Jane Fonda said the weirdest, in the weirdest possible way. But that's a, also a good example is that yep. you never know where truth is going to come from, and that's something that both he and Richard Rohr have quoted now that I've read, and um, just kind of tuning into, like, what are people... And so I think there is a sense, and there still is... Because in the conversations that I have had with people about God and the convers I don't know, I don't want to speak for you so you can speak to this, but the conversations that I've had about God, there's a strong desire for people, whether they've been in the church or not, they really want meaning. I don't think they want tradition. And the, the bad part of that is tradition gets demonized, which I don't think is correct. Um, and I would argue some people do want tradition. Yeah, I would too. I definitely would too. That they find... I've definitely run into the people that find a lot of comfort in knowing what they're getting and, and, and see a lot of value. Uh, Anthony being a good example from the last episode that, um, see a lot of value in that and that those things have stood the test of time for a reason. Um, I, I totally, I see the value in that too. I was very not that way. I think when we met, I was probably very not that way. Um, because I was being emergent and you were influenced by Luther and that's like, a whole part of the Reformation spirit is that we're going to buck tradition and right. go on and create and do our, our new thing, mm-hmm. which then, of course, ironically became its own tradition. And that now had, that yeah. against which we now must buck, you know, yeah. like, <laughs> that is funny. I, I always, I've often wondered if I could talk to Martin Luther about what has happened, like just the way the Lutheran church has progressed. First of all, I think he'd, he'd hate that it was named after him. I think he would hate that, <laughs> that we call it the Lutheran church. I think that would make him upset. Um, Although he was probably, he was a, I think we talked about, he's a profoundly depressed man also. So, (laughs) but, um, 
there's something about tuning into that. And I, I think that people, and I'd like to hear you talk about this, like in the conversations you have with people, do you like, do you think that they're searching for something beyond, um, what happens after I die? Do you think there's more to it than that? Strangely enough, I haven't really encountered anybody who's said that out mm-hmm. loud. Um, I don't know too many people who a think about death, uh, or, or B, really care about it enough to, to, to talk about it if mm-hmm. they do. Uh, for most people, um, the conversation for, for the conversation that I've confronted with folks about church and theology has all revolved around loneliness. That yeah. uh, here people are sharing this sense that they're not connected, they don't have the impact, they don't have the affirmation or the relationships or whatever that looks like for those particular individuals. Uh, they're missing something socially, which is, is maybe, and I don't think most people would consciously say this out loud, this, this next part, but, but they're socially not connected or grounded enough to fully be who they are. Does that make sense? Yes. Although say more about it. I, so like, uh, I know one person in particular who great guy, he goes to work, he does his thing and then he goes home and he spends the rest of his life basically from what I can tell. On the internet. And I don't know what the hell he's doing on the internet. He mm-hmm. playing video games, whatever. Um, and every time I see him in a social setting, like you can tell that he wants to engage, but he just has no idea how to. On sure. Sort of, a, mm-hmm. sort of a personal level. And my, my uh, individual <clears throat> sense of things seems to be that a lot of people are, are losing that, that we're having trouble uh, being able to have some of those very basic face-to-face conversations. Yeah, I agree. Um, and, and I know lots of people I worked with teenagers for a number of years who uh, would, sitting in the same room right next to each other, you know, text each other messages. Yeah. And there's no reason that they would, but just because they could, they had this technology there yeah. that they felt compelled uh, to use. And they could, if they were forced, talk to each other. But uh, for some reason, it's, I, I get the sense that a lot of people have a hard time being seen. Yeah. Because there's that vulnerability that comes with it that you might see me in a way that I don't want to, that I don't want you to see me. Yeah. Or, or you might, you might reflect me back to myself in a way that I don't want to see myself. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there's a whole, how much, whatever huge percent of communication is nonverbal right. thing that we've all heard, you know, uh, which if I was a better podcast, I'd be able to tell you what the exact percent is, but I'm not. So, and this is free, so you can all just deal with it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, um, um, but yeah, I think, I think. I like the word vulnerability and I think it, I think it taps into what a lot of people at least deal with, which is that like putting yourself out there, even in just to sit down and talk to somebody mm-hmm. doesn't feel like a risk to you or I, cause we do it a lot. Yeah. Um, but I think to someone who, and no offense to people who have these jobs, but someone who sits in a cubicle all day mm-hmm. and maybe just runs numbers or whatever, um, that might seem like a big deal, you know, to, to just sit down and physically talk to someone. Because you're right. I don't know what you're thinking. Even right now, I don't know what you're thinking about what I'm doing or the way I'm sitting or the way I'm moving or looking at you. Um, I make a lot of eye contact on purpose. I, I'm positive some people find that uncomfortable, um, but I'm not going to stop doing it. Um, and I contributed. I have contributed for a long time. Um, and if you're listening and don't happen to not know this, um, I, have a lot, I had a lot of problems with like anxiety and stuff. And um, so I go to therapy for that. And for a long time, I contributed a lot of my anxiety to 
a holy a, a lack of an ability to know what the other person was thinking, um, and I still do to a certain extent. Uh, so I don't think I think that's those are natural, right? Yeah. That's like a natural feeling people have, and I think the key is not letting that influence too much, or not letting that stop you from doing things. You know. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think and in, in there's a a really strange juxtaposition that if people would just maybe raise their level of self-consciousness just a click or two, they can be able to see this. But I think on the one hand, people are lonely and they don't want to be lonely. But on the other hand, uh, they also don't want to be vulnerable Yeah. and and they don't want to be in a position of of being judged. And so um, initially we were thinking when we were starting our new church community, like let's just make it, instead of having it be about specific beliefs or a certain way of looking at the world or uh, anything like that, let's just have... Our, our core value be, let's just be a community. We Let's be in the community business. Let's be about people gathering together. Mm. And we actually do. Uh, we actually have atheists, people who self-identify as atheists that come to our come to our church. And uh, and they're welcome. And they're uh, more than encouraged to, to bring their perspective and yeah. their ideas there. But the point is that we're all human beings together. And I think uh, hopefully nobody can uh, ignore that or, or uh, devalue, you know, our shared humanity. So you have people who actively claim to not believe that God exists. Yes. Who regularly attend a Methodist church. Yes. And uh, it's not quite as crazy as it might appear. A couple of those are family members of people who... Okay. um, I don't want to say drag because uh, a couple of people that I'm thinking of off the top of my head, they're like, I actually like coming here. Uh, I like the music that you guys do and I like... Uh, the people here, and uh, they actually have said that they've enjoyed, and they just maybe fluffing my ego a little bit, but they enjoy what we talk about yeah. uh, in the service as well. Hmm. Um, That's interesting. That's very interesting. And surprisingly, I mean, if if you've been involved in church uh, in a church community long enough, you'll find out that there's actually lots of that that goes I'm sure, on yeah. behind the scenes. I can remember. Um, in another setting, there was an individual who was extremely active in the church, um, but didn't believe in any of it. Hmm. But they did it because it, it gave them a sense of purpose. Uh, it gave them a role where other people would value them and appreciate the effort that they put yep. into the community. Yep. And uh, and it gave them friends. It gave them a community to be a part of. And so they were in that. They thought <laughs> they thought everything else was horseshit. Mm-hmm. But uh, and of course nobody knew this, and I didn't find out except uh, somebody very close to this individual was like, "Hey, Jeremy, did you hack? Did you actually know? Like, I would have never guessed yeah. that that's what they thought or what they believed." But looking back, it sort of makes sense. Mm-hmm. I, you know what though, I, and I think I, I think both of us probably feel this way. I'm good with that. Yeah. If it if it gets you out the door, yeah, and you are getting something from it, maybe not the thing. You intend this. You got. You intentionally want people to come experience community, yeah. which we, which we, I think, equate exp- with experiencing God. Um, yeah. Not everybody will do that though, and that's fine. But I think that a lot of churches, the the goal becomes like, well, we have to tell them about Jesus. We have to get them to believe in Jesus, which is a term that's just draped in like vagary and and you know what I mean, like. But not not just not just believe in Jesus, but you got to welcome Jesus Christ into your heart. Yeah. Again. Whatever that really means, yeah, you know, um, and that's probably, we are going to try, for those of you listening, to keep this around an hour. We could probably talk, when I meet with Jeremy, it usually goes for like three, four hours. And that's not hyperbole, that's just what happens. Yeah. Um, but, so then, like, there's this desire for it to be quantifiable in some way or whatever. But I think you're right. So then, so then people won't say 
they won't come out and be authentic and say, I just come here because I like hanging out with people because they'll feel as though they'll be like cast out of the community, which is that seems very counter what Jesus would have wanted to me. Yeah, Especially given how much he spent time he spent hanging out with people who were like, you know, the, the outsiders or the others or the, you know, um, well, and that, that I think is the great irony of Christianity is that, uh, here you have this thing that was founded on being culturally transgressive. I, yeah. I mean, the thing that made Christianity unique and powerful in its early stages was that here was a movement where suddenly all the old boundaries that we had in terms of socioeconomic status, uh, cultural identity and language barriers, uh, and Paul's very uh, explicit about this too, uh, about gender or uh, your particular role within society, none of that stuff mattered. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in Christ, there is no uh, free or slave. There is no Jew or Greek. There is right. no male and female. But all are one uh, in Christ Jesus. That radical notion was, was precisely a breaking down of all the social barriers that we put up to protect ourselves and our mm-hmm. positions to feel safe. And now we've just taken and put up new ones. Yes, absolutely. And... That all goes back, and I think it's important to recognize that that's not inherent in uh, the spirit of Christianity, mm-hmm. but I think it is very much inherent in people's, in human beings and their their desire for control. Um, mm-hmm. And so the, I think, this is just my personal interpretation, questions like, are you saved? Do you believe? All these are just, uh, are really political statements, essentially. Are, are they... Um, do you say yes to these statements so that you can be in this group? Mm, yeah. Um, which I think makes sense. And, and they're probably, it, it's hard to imagine, uh, and we've tried to do it, but, and I found myself sort of drifting back. Okay, let's have some, some sense of boundaries, or, or at least uh, let's have some sense of shared expectations together so that we are kind of encouraging one another in, in a similar direction, mm. at least. Because uh, otherwise, it's like, well, what, what does it look like to just love people? Yeah. Do you, do you do you feel as though do you feel as though we need or we gravitate to those because it, otherwise it's hard to recognize like even forward motion or progress in some way. Like if we don't have some way to say here here is how we have done we're we're doing this better. Like I don't want to say like quantifiable, but some kind of metric. Because otherwise, I think. You're right. What does it look like to just say we love people, and then you just sit? You we all get together and do that. Yeah. Um, and for me, rather than a metric, I would I would put it more in terms of a vision. Like we have to have a sense that we're going somewhere. Yeah, yeah. That we have to have this notion of progress, and then hopefully all of us are, are able to look back at least to yesterday or a couple years before and say, "Hey, I've grown, mm-hmm. or, or I've gotten something new or more out of." Uh, the past day or year. What does progress look like for you in in, the, in that context? In the, in the setting of your church, maybe? Um, I, I think for us, at least right now, one of the things that we emphasize primarily, and uh, this is why it sucks being week two, is that they talked about, you guys talked about it last week, yeah. which is this idea of openness. Mm-hmm. I think uh, you could respond, well, I, I feel like right now you could respond to the what's the meaning of life question with, just be open. Mm-hmm. Like, enjoy the ride. Uh, let go of your desires to control things for a little bit and let, like, let, let life happen to you and then run with it. Yeah. Um, so for us, it's uh, in what we put a lot of work and emphasis and talk a lot about are like, just let go of some mm-hmm. of this stuff. We live in a day and an age and a culture that has just so much stuff that it flings at you at a daily basis. I once heard that uh, a statistic that um, the average American is confronted with something like 
500 sales pitches a day uh, from advertisements, from wow. getting the mail, um, to interacting with other people who want to sell them insurance or whatever. And uh, regardless of what the actual number is, if it's... if it's Not counting the people that just want to sell you on themselves. Like, I, I, I want to sell you me, I yes. want you to like me. Like, not just, not even counting that, you know. Yeah, I, I, uh, I, I don't think that was included in it. I think that was in the, just the realm of, of advertisements. And if you think about it, how many, how many billboards do you pass just going to work? Yeah. Uh, and how many advertisements do you listen to on the radio while you're going to work? Uh, you could probably count up, you know, 50 mm-hmm. just between your home and where you, uh, your place of employment in the morning. Um, even the podcast you, you listen to anymore, it's, they, they'll break in the conversation just to say, this is brought to you by, you know, Squarespace or whatever. Yeah. Um, which by the way, if they want to sponsor us, I mean, yeah. <laughs> by the way, don't you have a book to I sell? Have yeah. No problem with that. <laughs> it, it has been weird at the end of every podcast, you know, there's always like the, where can people find you? What do you have coming yeah. up? And it's like, here's where you can find me. I don't have anything coming up because I'm not like a person that does that. <laughs> Yet. <laughs> Yet. You might be. This, it might grow into something. But yeah, openness, and I think that you know, um, it'd be interesting. It'd be interesting for me to track in my own mind how often that's going to come up, which is probably a lot, um, which is good. I'm good with that. But which, I think that it's it's uh, vulnerability is really more of a, a a thing that we've been talking about here, which is that you know, I people don't want to put themselves out there like that, and I think that the part of the concern, first of all, is obviously being rejected, mm-hmm. um, and second of all. I, how much do you think people just worry that they're going to run against something that they can't handle? Yeah, I think, I think that happens a lot. Um, my tendency is, is to think that most people just don't think about it. They don't even, they can't envision all the bad things that might happen. Mm-hmm. But there's just, uh, and I read a, another book by Paul Tillich, it's called The Courage to Be, that made a distinction, which I think is helpful, mm-hmm. which is the only reason I bring it up, between, uh, a distinction between anxiety and fear. And anxiety is just the sense that some bad thing could happen at any any point in time. And so it's actually moving from anxiety into fear is actually forward progress because then you can identify, here's the thing that I'm afraid of. Yeah. Uh, and that way you make it concrete and you make it, as soon as it's con- uh, concrete and something that you can at least grasp with your mind, then you can take action to either not succumb to that fear or, or to deal with that specific fear as you're confronted with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think most people just live in anxiety. They, yeah. they don't they don't know what the bad thing is that's going to happen to them, but they're just worried that something bad. And aren't even mindful or aware enough to know that they're anxious. Yes. Yeah. Which, again, not to keep harping on this, but it's going to come up a lot, I imagine. Again, as somebody who has gone through a lot of therapy to deal with that, one of the things they really, I think it's called cognitive behavioral something or other. I could be wrong about that, but the... The whole deal is identifying, learning to identify where, uh, when that, that feeling happens, ground yourself in something, and then that allows you to start breaking down. I like what you said that it's a progression from anxiety to fear, and that's actually an improvement because at least you're putting a name on it and identifying it. And yeah, there is a real struggle, at least there, there was for me for a long time. I would be anxious about things. I had no idea why. Then became at least aware enough to know that I was anxious. So that was a step. Yeah. And then started realizing, and I've talked to you about this at great length, I think, started realizing like, oh, I'm afraid that someone's going to come in here and shoot everybody, or I'm afraid that, you know, um, and then walking that back from, okay, how, how rational is that? Now, I will grant you, and I talk about this in therapy quite a bit, those are things that happen. 
if you think they can't happen, you're lying to yourself a little. But also if you think it's like likely to happen to you on a regular basis, you're also lying to yourself a little. So there is a little bit of like, I have no problem with preparedness and I think I'm still for the rest of my life going to be someone that gets up and checks that make sure all the doors are locked when I go to bed. I'll do it forever and ever and ever. With that being said, sitting in a building and thinking, like sitting in your home right now thinking like, it's, hmm, what are we going to do if somebody comes in here and shoots us? Like, eh, come on. You know what I mean? Like that's, could it happen? Yeah. Is it likely to? No. And learning to cut those things off. But there's also a sense in which um, that sort of awareness is exhausting, too. Yeah. And I think uh, in, in your specific example that you just mentioned is a good example of this, too, that we can continue moving into our awareness, too, of, of the anxiety and unpack that a little bit. So you're afraid that somebody will shoot you. Why are you afraid that somebody will shoot you? Are you really, then, afraid of death, or are you really afraid of uh the lack of control that might come along with mm-hmm. with the, the awareness that somebody else could manipulate the circumstance in a yeah. way that will deviate it from your own plans and intentions. Um, and you can think about that and you can unpack it. And I, I think it's helpful, but then it gets to a point where it's also not helpful because yeah. then you're thinking about it so much that it detracts you away from the good things. If, you, if you're, all your energy is in worry, fear, and anxiety, then you're not going to have a whole lot of energy left for love, excitement, hope, or just the, normal, yeah. normal interactions. Gratitude. Yeah. yeah. The, the worst version of this is, and I think I've been there is just th- these thoughts consume you so much that you then stop interacting like a normal person or not even like, I hate to use, I hesitate to use the word normal, but like a person, like the person that you were before. Um, how much of this, because you know more about this than I do, how much of this is like what, what you would talk about in like mindfulness meditation? How much of this is what I'm Yeah, like about? this conversation. Um, I think a lot of it is, I mean, basically mindfulness meditations, and I'm no expert on this by any means. Somebody handed me a book that was written by um, somebody who, a smart guy, but I would sort of qualify him as like a pop psychologist yeah. to a certain extent. Um, as far as I can understand, mindfulness meditation is simply paying attention yep. and asking the question, where does your focus lie? Um, and then the other like major idea of it is, as far as I have learned is just being, uh, I had the word and then just lost it. Uh, just being present. That, yeah. That's what I was looking for. Mm-hmm. That wherever you are, like be there and, and instead of investing in worry or anxiety, which is of course, anticipating or trying to anticipate the future or possible futures uh, or, or living in a state of grief or regret, which is, you know, letting the past still have control or power. Mm-hmm. You just be there. And if, if you're sitting here having a podcast, sit there ha- and have the podcast. Right. If you're uh, eating breakfast or dinner with your family, be there and yeah. uh, eat with your family and enjoy the taste of food mm-hmm. in your mouth and enjoy the presence of people who probably for the most part really love you mm-hmm. and uh, are able to put up with you. Um, and, and this is, a, this is, I think a related idea that's, that's also very fascinating and very telling about human beings. And uh, Rob Bell and Richard Rohr talked about this yeah. on their previous podcast is why is it that, that so much of our attention uh, is so, uh, so much more easily caught up in the negative mm-hmm. uh, emotions and experiences. Why is it that we can have a, uh, a pretty great day where 95% of the things go really well. You know, our, our cars work, uh, we get to work on time, we do our job. Uh, most of it goes through without any uh, sort of violent intent. But then, you know, Sandy has drama and 
affects her work and then you sort of get tied into her drama and maybe that's just a 15 minute bad experience that you have in the course of your day uh but then you go home and you're not thinking about that great conversation that you had with fred over lunch you're not thinking about uh the 95% of your work that, that actually went really smoothly and mm-hmm. did good. And uh, even if you work in something that, you know, something like insurance, insurance has its place in, in making, I think, America a little bit better. That's my optimistic perspective. Sure. Uh, but instead you're dwelling on this this little bit of drama that you got roped into and then you're taking it home to your wife. Or not even as you say, it's easy to forget those things. Yeah. Like you're going home to a home. Yes. You yeah. have a wife. You're Like you said, your car started. You didn't get in an accident the way there. You're going to come home. There's going to be food to eat. Mm-hmm. Things that other people would not take for granted. But we are fortunate enough to have these kind of problems where, yeah, that bad the one bad 15 minutes of my day ruined the whole thing somehow. Um, and it's really like, it's almost like a, how do I want to put this? It's almost like half of being bipolar, I feel like, because you feel minor lows. Well, maybe it's just being bipolar. You feel you feel minor lows, like you make them so much bigger. Everybody does this, I think, just out of without even knowing it. But you, in order for to get back up, you need like something. Re- you feel like you need something really good to happen, yeah. so you can be like, oh, okay, well, that makes up for that. Instead of just coming home being like, well, that happened, but here I am in the house that I can live in that's warm and comfortable, and I won't be in the rain tonight, and I'll have food to eat. And, um, I mean, it oversimplifies it, but at the same time, I think it's like there is a, there is truth there. Um, and I think there's I think there's actually something really good underneath it if we can uh, recognize that in the moment, which is that for most of us, good is our default. Yeah. And so we recognize the deviations in mm. our default. So we recognize as um, being exceptional these events of bad experiences, however we want to qualify those. Like, and, and uh, here's a story that I think illustrates that pretty well. A couple of weeks ago, I went and visited another church and it was um, a little bit of an older congregation. I sat in with a Sunday school class of people. Uh, there was one lady who was 50. And I think uh, aside from her, there were like eight people in the class. The next youngest was maybe uh, in her late sixties, but I think the average age was probably somewhere around 77. That's mm-hmm. just uh, a ballpark guess. And they were talking of all things about their bodies and how they felt about their bodies. And me, as I'm 33 years old, I'm relatively healthy. Uh, I'm in relatively, like, okay shape. And, and I had anticipated that a conversation among elderly folks <coughs> um, <laughs> would be would consist primarily of complaints. But the universal uh, feeling in the room was that they were just grateful for all the things that did work. Yeah. And all of them were, you know, we're talking about the things that they, they couldn't do anymore, or at least they couldn't do them as quickly uh, in the same way that they did uh, this sense of loss of, um, of power and ability. And yet they also had that grounded against, well, you know, I'm 82 years old in some cases. Sure. The fact that I can do anything, I'm mm-hmm. just, I'm just glad to be above ground. Yeah. And I, I kind of wanted to ask them the death question. Like, so here you are and you are maybe making some progress or getting close to that. What, what is that looking like and how are you experiencing that? But, uh, but I didn't cause it's kind of a morbid thing that, uh, that's sure part of my deal. Want to talk right. about. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I did just sort of notice that, that how, how cool is that? Like I sit around with my friends, uh, and when it comes to the, the, the conversation about how you feel, it's always like, Oh man, I'm stressed about this or, and I can't eat like I used to. And what yeah. a bummer. And, uh, you know, I, I go and work out and I get sore now and, you know, it's, it's all just bitching. Mm-hmm. But here are these people who, you know, in some cases, like the question was, can you walk upstairs? <laughs> and 
uh, they're like, sometimes I can. If I remember <laughs> to bring my cane. And if they can, it's like a real something to feel like it's a, a it's an victory. Yeah, an yeah. accomplishment. That, that's accomplishment's a better word. And so, I mean, I, I think that's a good perspective. And you hear a lot of people who talk about their complaints or their problems. Uh, and then they add the the qualifying contextualization of first world problems, mm-hmm. right? Which nobody, I haven't heard anybody actually say this out loud, but I think it does mean like, oh, this is not really even a real problem. Yep. This is just a, a minor inconvenience in uh, a much bigger picture where pretty much everything else just goes my way. Yeah. Brad Pitt and Moneyball said, he goes, uh, I have uptown problems, which aren't really problems at all. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that if, if we can remember that and live in that, uh, that would make us a lot less depressed and anxious. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to get back to that that anxiety thing because I think there's a term that I found really helpful, but I've only heard this uh, one individual, Paul Tillich, use it, which is uh, he talks about the threat of non-being. So it isn't just, okay. I'm not just afraid of death, but I'm afraid of all the things that uh, that might threaten my being. Mm-hmm. And, and that can come out in a lot of really subtle ways. And so you, um, I'll, I'll use myself as an example. I get up and I give talks uh, every week. And I would love to view myself as a smart, funny guy who just gives these great sermons. Yeah. But I know that as soon as I, I give those, I, I'm going to be confronted with people. I view myself that way. No, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> And I think all of us, I mean, I don't think it's a secret that all of us want to be good at what we do. Sure. And we all want other people to appreciate what mm-hmm. we do. Um, and it's, well, and especially, I, I don't want to, I don't want you to lose that thought, so I did mm-hmm. write it down. But especially for anybody that's in any kind of entertainment. Yeah. And let's be honest, preaching is at least half that, that you kind of have to lie to yourself and say you're at least good at it. Mm-hmm. Because if you go up there thinking, oh, I'm bad at this, you know what? You're going to be bad at it. Yep. And everybody will be able to tell. Like the, the moment I realized, the moment I realized I was comfortable speaking in front of people coincides with the moment I decided to just like go for it. Yep. And be and be loud and be demonstrative and and be like the preachers that I had seen that I remembered liking, mm-hmm. and and saying like I'm just gonna go for that and I that's the that's the speaker I will be yeah. and never stopped doing it yeah. and I, even if people hate it which I'm sure some do, um, it, it's the only reason I've had any success at all being yeah. somebody that even somebody that could do this like what we're doing right now because people are gonna listen to this presumably about two hundred of them if the numbers hold and. To, to even think we have anything worth saying, first of all, and then to think you can say it well enough that people would want to listen to you at all or that there's any value to that. I mean, you sort of have to fight that urge inside that's like, nobody would want, nobody cares what you think. Like, you know. <laughs> Which is funny because I was listening actually to a, a, a writer talk about that very, that very same issue. But um, getting back to that, so, so we're all going to go out and face circumstances where the image that we want to have uh, of ourself before others, uh, is vulnerable and might be torn down. Yeah. So anytime that you go to, anytime that I go to approach people afterward, uh, you know, you can, you can shift the conversation. I think, um, it's very easy to just not talk about it. It's like that thing happened. We're mm-hmm. not going to bring that up yep. because I don't want to hear what you have to say. Uh, and that's because that's the, the threat of non-being that they might damage, uh, the, your sense of identity that you have for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think the the truth of that though is that all the all of the images or perceptions that we have of ourselves that can be damaged are probably disposable and they're not they're not some piece of us yep. that can last and it's probably not speaking to our true identity mm-hmm. because if if um, 
if it did turn out that I, I did actually, and if I just woke up to this fact that I do actually suck as, as a preacher, mm. uh, the responsible thing for me to do would be to not be a preacher anymore. But of course I wouldn't cease being me. You know, yeah. I'd, I'd find something else that hopefully I can do. Well, interestingly, and I think accidentally, which is why I love doing this, that ties back to the first thing you said, which is essences. There's nothing that you can, to use your cat example, I can sit there and tell that cat it's bad at being a cat, whatever that means. It's still a cat. It's not going to change that. I can tell you you're bad at being a preacher, which I don't believe you are, but it, I could tell you that. Somebody could tell me I'm a bad paramedic, which I'm sure people have thought. Um, I'm still me. The things that have happened to me have still happened. The person that I am, the things that I believe. And it, th- there are things that... I heard it described once. I can't remember who did this. You've probably heard this too. There are open fist and closed fist things, yeah. you know. And your closed fist things... I'm doing this like people can see my face. <laughs> the, 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 your closed fist things are the things... He is that closing his fist and am, shaking it emphatically. It is clo- yeah, yeah. <laughs> visualize that at home. Um, that are, you know, these are the things that... I think at the time it was it was it was positive to me as these are the things you have your mind made up about. I prefer to say it as these are the things when your fist is closed that make you you that fundamentally won't change. Um, again, things that we identify with the sort of love that God has put in you and and that kind of stuff. But if you don't use that language, that's fine. Um, but the, just the thisness of you, which I like that by the way you said that earlier. And then the open fist things are the things that can be challenged. And you, like you said, if they can be challenged or they can they can be torn down in some way, then they probably weren't closed fist things. They probably yeah. weren't things that were essential to you, the you-ness of you. Yeah. This-ness and you-ness. Maybe yeah. you-ness will be the name of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, and I think that does get back to what I believe is a very important conversation that probably ordinary people should be having, non-church people, everybody should be having on a fairly routine basis, which is... You know, what's the important stuff? Mm-hmm. Uh, so you want to be important, so you want to matter. Uh, what does that look like, and then how do you do that? Mm-hmm. And and this is where I think theology is actually really helpful. And I wanted to stop you a couple minutes ago, because I think this is important. I think we've sort of breached this in the past once or twice, is the word God. You know, what mm-hmm. does the word God actually point to or, or speak of? And I think most people think it's, you know, some kind of, like, personality that has usually pretty specific traits. Uh, a lot of people tend to visualize it as being a male with a long white beard. Mm-hmm. Um, Pete Holmes says the, the Burger King king. Yes. <laughs> he said, <laughs> not moving face, crown, just... <laughs> uh, and Richard Rohr on the podcast, I think, uh, drew that back to the... Even that imagery of the man with the long white beard is, you know, pagan. It's... We're drawing from... Yeah. Referencing... Uh, prior religions, Zeus and Odin are, are mm-hmm. uh, primary examples of that. But but for me, I think when we use the word God, we're really just talking about power. Yeah. And um, you could probably also include in, in some, uh, on some level, the quality of life, mm-hmm. uh, living or energy, uh, which I think even in our popular conceptions are pretty closely related terms. And so I think when we're looking at... Uh, the anthropological side of theology, the, the part where people collide with this idea of God is that we have something of a life force in us, that we have yeah. some power. And uh, because we didn't, we didn't self-generate, uh, we all have parents. Yep. Um, we inherited that. And there's, there's somehow, and, and I think all cultures and all people have some at least vague sense that this life is, is passed on. Yeah. And, um, and now, now we have, 
another great lens to look at a lot of this stuff, which is uh, the lens of, of science and physics. And we, have, we find out that, uh, you know, when we ask spatially, where does that life force or where does that energy live? Um, there have been at least some people who have speculated that it actually lives on the atomic or the subatomic mm -hmm. level. And that um, life is maybe even just generated out of particular combinations of, of energy. And possibly, and, and this, is, this is all speculative uh, at this point, but I think it's interesting to kind of think and uh, use my imagination about that, you know, even when we die, that living piece of us maybe just goes out and gets scattered. And you, you think about how we maintain our sense of life, which of course, uh, I don't know what, why I was thinking about this the, uh, the other day, but we actually have to eat other yeah. living things, right? We have yeah. to eat plants, we have to eat animals. And there's, there's somehow that we have to take, uh, we'd call it nutrition, but uh, for the sake of this conversation, call it life force. We have to take that life force into us to keep doing uh, the thing that we're doing. I've always thought it was interesting. It, it, this is sort of similar, and it, it's very scientific, and anyone's taken any science class has probably heard this, that energy cannot be created or destroyed, mm -hmm. um, only sort of transferred. Mm -hmm. And I've always thought that was interesting. And it's mm -hmm. you and I have talked about before, it's one of those things that scientists say, and they're just like, yeah, that's a thing. And you're like, what are you talking about? Do you not hear what you're saying? Like, Because they basically say, yeah, all the energy in the world that exists just exists, and you can't create or destroy it, it just moves around. And you're like... But, what? But one time, in, somewhere in history, there was no energy. Yeah, yeah. And they're okay with that. Yeah. But the second I say, well, what if that energy is God? They're like, no, that's, that God doesn't exist. I'm like, well, you pretty much just said he did, though. <laughs> like, you know. Um, I want to be clear about something that, because we've sort of segued into it naturally, which is that I, on the last podcast, I'm aware that I said, like, truth with a capital T quite a bit, or mm -hmm. like church with a capital C. When I say, like, goodness with a capital G or if you hear Jeremy say it, because I imagine you'll probably be back on the show at some point, is that we mean sort of global, universal, intrinsic truth. Um, a lot of the time you could easily exchange those things with God. Um, although I think, and you and I have talked about this quite a bit, and this whole conversation goes towards this, which is that there's so many people bring so much baggage to the mm -hmm. word God just, mm -hmm. just by itself that... The, the, my desire is to use other language mm -hmm. and, and not be afraid that people won't understand what we're talking about yeah. or think that that's somehow not like we're not being the church if we don't say God all the time, that we can call, we can interchange those things mm -hmm. and it's fine. Because I, first of all, God is the English word that's a translation of a Greek word that's a translation of a Hebrew word that, you know, that, yeah. so God doesn't call himself that you know, or call himself anything most likely because he probably lacks capacity to speak in that way. But like, you know what I mean? But, um, the shifting of that, I think it'll be important for, again, the church with the capital C going forward is changing the way we talk about it, all this stuff. And that should definitely be a podcast of its own. I think so too. Just what that word means in, uh, how we use it. Um, cause my, it sounds like maybe your tendency is, is to use it less and use other words to substitute for, uh, to substitute for it. My tendency I think is to use it more often, uh, and then to use it in sort of unexpected places. Yeah. So, um, well, that's interesting. We're, we're, we want the same thing, but we're going about it two yeah. different ways. Yeah. That's interesting. Or at least have two, we both tuned into the same thing and yeah. Hmm. Because there really is something moving that's outside of us yeah. that we are given the chance to participate in. And, and I think that that's a really cool and exciting prospect. And that, that if you are open, 
then you get to be a part of this larger cultural movement that, that goes on to produce a future and produce life mm-hmm. in ways that we can't even conceive or imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, and it goes back to what we were talking about before, which is that, you know, when you think about the bigness of the world, there's two ways to, to come at that. And this is our, really it took us an hour to parse out that our version of that, it's fascinating to me, by the way, how conversations always kind of circle around like that. It, anyway, maybe I do that intentionally. I don't know. But um, that the, the most optimistic version of this is the participation in something bigger um, that, and that you have a part to play in it. I wanted to say earlier that, you know, when people go out and they, I think a lot of the time, the worry about um, vulnerabilities, losing the thing that makes you valuable in some sense. Because you said, I think where this came from is you said something to the effect of people want to feel valued, they want to go somewhere. And, you know, the big shift that has to happen, again, the longer I talk to people, the more I have to fight the urge to start preaching about things. But the, the, the big shift in my mind for in the way that made me really start to rethink how I understood Christianity was that um, that value is already there. Mm-hmm. Regardless of um, what you think it is, which I think is an important distinction, it's, it's in there. And the beautiful thing is that nobody can take that away from you. So that should sort of should certainly empower you to go out there and do all those things because put yourself out there, you're going to fail. Um, everybody does. I have a million times. I probably will today. After, like immediately after this is over, I'll probably fail some way. You know, but, then, but that being said, it, no one can take that value away from you. We want to call that you know, we've called that in the past, like being a child of God and that kind of stuff. I just, to me, it communicates on a, on a somehow a deeper level, at least right now with the stuff I'm tuned into and having conversations with people is just that that value is there and it, you can't lose it. And if you know that, man, what's stopping you? There's nothing, there should be nothing stopping you. And something that you said, and this I think is, is one of the really cool, unique possibilities within Christianity, but there's also like, you're also sort of walking on the borderline of something heretical or maybe even blasphemous, which is that there's something godly within us. Yeah. Um, so to a certain extent, we're not just children of God, but we, we are, and, and how you qualify this is, is probably the part that makes the, the, the difference is that you are on some level and, and I've, uh, Richard Rohr and mm-hmm. had even drawn the possibility in uh, one of the books I read recently uh, of his that that Jesus comes along and part of his purpose was to elevate the status of humanity to bring them just a little bit closer to the divine yeah uh, to help them live out that that divine potential that they have within them mm-hmm. um, which of course if you go back and you look for that as you're reading the Bible like it's all over the place yeah um, so I think that's that, that's what the you will do the greater things in this yeah yeah mm-hmm. and if we were able to really internalize that, I don't think that there can be anything that, that can make you more valuable or more meaningful than saying, you know, whatever that cosmic force is that's moving history and breathing life into new eras and is, you know, causing entire civilizations to rise and fall um, is within you. And, and you're, you're a part of that. Yeah. Uh, and that your consciousness maybe on, on some even just a microcosmic level has the power to influence that I think is, is pretty mm-hmm. cool and pretty empowering. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's, again, some of the stuff we were talking about before is that, you know, you might need other people to understand that, that power, that value. In fact, I think you almost definitely do. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, 
it can't be understood in a vacuum. That being said, it's still there regardless. You know, which I I just feel like is I don't know why I just felt it was important to say. All that stuff is there. It's like untapping it, unlocking it. I think it's why we're obsessed with um, like superhero culture now, because everybody uh, everybody wants to feel that way or, or feel like they're somebody they're meant to be something significant. But the, you know, part of the problem with a lot of this is that like something extraordinary happens to these people, and then they are, you know, they're somebody special. The the cool thing about Christianity is sort of turning that on its head and saying like, no, that's all that's always been there. The origin story would be just you discovering it, you know. Can I go? And this is maybe a a tangent, but going back to the superhero ana- analogy and, and why we need some of the things that we have created for ourselves and superheroes being an, being an example. There are two ways of looking at that. Uh, we create superheroes because we want to be able to relate to them mm-hmm. and sort of elevate our uh, status and imagine what it would be like to have power. But I think the other end of that is that we actually feel powerless and we create these superheroes out of our sense yeah. of powerlessness. And that if, if only we had these, you know, sort of cosmic figures around to stop all the, the evil forces or all the bad guys then we wouldn't be living in this mm-hmm. in this state of chaos and uh, despair. Well, I think that does, don't uh, doesn't at least Superman have a lot of ties to the Gollum in and not the Lord of the Rings Gollum, like the one from Judaism. I read that somewhere, but I, I don't remember. I'm I'm pretty yeah. sure that's true. So for those of you who don't know what that is, um, there's like a I want to say legend. I, I don't know if I'm using any of the right words of a Gollum, which was ostensibly a giant clay statue that would come to life and defend the Jewish people. Um, if you're interested in this, I want to read a super long novel, uh, which I did finish. The, uh, the amazing adventures of Cavalier and clay, um, talks quite a bit about this, not outrightly, but certainly draws those parallels. And I, I definitely remember reading that somewhere, but there, you're right. There is a tie to that that goes back that far to, to some sense of, we want a, we want a defender, somebody that will come in and, 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 you know, what I think has sort of happened, too, and it's interesting to talk about that, is that that kind of gave us a skewed version of what we thought Jesus should have been. Yeah. And that's pretty well documented, I think, even in the Bible, and certainly afterwards, where people thought he was going to be this guy who would come in and fix everything, or would come in to defend them, or was going to... Didn't one of the... Think he was going to start a war or something? like? Yeah, there was actually uh, a lot of people who were expecting the Messiah, or the Christ, to be... Uh, a figure that's very reminiscent of King David back mm-hmm. in, the, uh, in the Hebrew Bible of this guy who almost single-handedly rose up and assembled an army and cast off the oppression yeah. of the Philistines and, and their other bad guy neighbors. And the, the shift has been, and this is something I, I realized a long time ago, I think, but that the, the difference is that, you know, for whatever reason, we, we are fighting a war, and it's that, it's that great... Uh, True Detective thing I knew that we it. always say yeah. that there's a war happening behind things. If you're listening to this and you haven't watched True Detective, shame on you. But um, <laughs> Just um, the first season, at least. Just the first season. The second season, you can take or leave. But that, yeah, that is true. We're, we're fighting a war against what? Lo- not, not, you know, I want to say evil, but that sounds dramatic. We're fighting a war against loneliness. We're fighting a war against, um, against poverty, certainly. We're fighting war. And those things all could be considered evil, I think. What about just a war against apathy? Yeah, that too. Yeah. Um, That is happening. And the way in which God has chosen to, or the world is, well, I'm going to say God because it makes sense for this, that God has chosen to fight that war is by empowering all of us to have a role to play in it. 
I long ago stopped wondering why that is. Because it, you look at us and all the trouble that we have with owning that value, participating in the war, you know, understanding that, that, that stuff. You look and go, well, this seems like the worst plan. You know what I mean? But at the same time, it's like, I realized a long time ago, like, you know, it's one of those things. I hate to be one of these people, but we certainly have to embrace mystery on some level. And I think it's just one of those things we're going to look at and go, I don't know why God chose to do it this way, but this is the way that it's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've listened to a lot of people who have said, uh, the gospel is really God's invitation for you to, I now want to change it and say, own your role in the redemption of the planet. Um, Maybe not, because the way I've heard it said in the past is join him in redemption of the planet, but that makes it seem like, I just, I just like the language of saying own it. Like there's an option to not be with God. Right, yeah, yeah like, like, yeah, there's a way to, like, just continue on and you won't, yeah. you know. Um, but I think we've done an hour. It's probably been more than an hour. I'm, I'm okay with that. Is it nap time? <laughs> I think they did go on, but it seems like they haven't woken up. So. Oh, that's good. Okay. Um, well, thanks for doing this, man. Yeah. It's been fantastic. I feel um, like we, we just, we had a can of worms sitting there and we just got like the lid cracked. We did. Bit. You know what though? That's going to be the way all these are. <laughs> I, I, I can already tell. I think after the first, I say the first round, I don't even know what that means. I'll have to go back and hit everybody again. Because um, Anthony had a bunch of stuff he wanted to keep talking about too. So can we, can we end with just no, maybe, maybe a question? Yeah, sure. Which is that, because I think from my experience and... It's been one of the really interesting parts of being identified publicly as a pastor is that, A, lots and lots of people just don't want to talk to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but, B, the people who do want to talk to you kind of just, like, unload all this, like, weird stuff it, because it's as if they have nobody else to talk to or to ask their questions with. Um, so maybe just to challenge the audience out there, where can we actually have some more of these con- conversations about yeah. who we are, who we believe that we are, uh, what's out there, what mysteries in life are mm-hmm. worth exploring and pursuing? Well, I think what, you know, I'd, I'd like to think what's resonating with people about the first episode, at least, and then hopefully this one too, is that this is, these are things that are not, this is not a conversation they're hearing on a regular yeah. basis. Yeah. Um, and I want to be very clear in every episode that I have, which is that it, you know, and Jeremy and I especially probably, I think we tried not to, but probably used some words that people didn't know the meaning of, if only for the reason be, that we studied religion academically, um, Jeremy much more so than I did, but um, that that doesn't matter. Uh, an open invitation to participate in the conversation is there, um, and I think that even a bunch of people who have no formal training in thinking about thinking, who just sit down and go, who do you think we are? Yeah. You know, I think, that, and even if they say, I want to interview people that will say, I'm a mother, I'm a this and that, and I you know, that's where Anthony started. I think we got into some good stuff. I, I, when I was talking to a friend before and sort of did a dry run of this, he said, I'd like to think I'm a pretty good person. Then we had like an hour long conversation about that because you get into what does that, what does goodness mean? What, uh, why bother being a good person? Why are those, you know, um, which gets into concepts that people don't have to think about on a regular basis. And if nothing else, I hope that's what this is. And it's also why I've said to people, um, as we sort of end, come up on the end here, is that, you know, if, if, if you listen to this and you say, well, I have things to say about that, well, then you should call me because I would love to have you on the show. Uh, <laughs> uh, I really don't care uh, who you are or if I even know you. Um, get in touch with me. It's something I want to do. Um, in the interest of that, Jeremy, if people 
want to continue having a conversation with you specifically, where are the places they can find you? Uh, at my house? No. Yeah. Uh, well, I wouldn't give you out your address on this podcast. Yes. <laughs> or, my, or my phone number. But you can look up uh, our church. We're Thrive UMC. As far as I know, we're the only Thrive UMC. You're on Facebook mm-hmm. or uh, I take emails too. Okay. So Jeremy dot poland mm-hmm. thriveumc.org okay and if, for those of you in the des moines area where where and when does that church meet if oh. you're interested in yeah we meet at the learning resource center uh, which the address is 3550 mill civic parkway okay. in west des moines at 10 10 a.m on 10, sunday mornings 10. why 10 10 uh because we good question uh it's our we have a scripture verse that that our church is named after uh so it's john 10 10 mm-hmm. uh which is jesus telling his audience that he came so that they might have life indeed, so that they might live life to the fullest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good stuff. I like that. Uh, fantastic. So if you want to continue having a conversation with either me or Jeremy, uh, please reach out to us. We're happy to do that. You can follow me on Twitter. It's not very interesting, but you can do it anyway. <laughs> you can follow me on Twitter at Chris Petrick. You can, um, hopefully at some point this will be on iTunes, in which case um, you can also visit my website, which is ChristopherPetrick.com. Um, and if you come to Jeremy's church, let's see, this is going to drop tonight, I hope, uh, if I get around to editing it, um, which is April 19th. If you come to Jeremy's church this weekend, there's a special guest worship leader. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's me, guys. It's, <laughs> spoiler alert, it's me. So it's not that special. but um, You're very special. Oh, thank There's you. There's only one Chris Petrick like you. And no one can take that value away from me. That's true. Didn't you know that? Because God gave it to you. It's, that's right. Mm-hmm. That ni- that's, puts a nice bow on everything, doesn't it? <laughs> um, All the problems are solved. <laughs> for housekeeping stuff, I, hopefully these are going to come out once a week until I just can't do them weekly anymore, in which case uh, we'll slow down. But right now there's enough people... Um, I'm optimistic that we can get these out once a week. I don't really care what day they're released on, so if you're that kind of person, sorry. They're just going to come out when they're done. Uh, (laughs) uh, But uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. As always, if you enjoy what you're hearing, um, get in touch with us, and also feel free to share it uh, all over social media. I certainly don't know 200 people that listen to this, so I imagine that's already happened in some way. Um, So please continue to do that. Jeremy, we'll have to have you back at some point. That'd be great. Awesome. All right. Bye, everybody.